0: You guys look remarkably well for getting two hours of sleep. You've given me a bit of a challenge this morning, by the way. You better get those lights on for these poor folks. Um, the, the, the Lord gave me daughters to make fun of me. I mean, that's that's what the Lord did. I, I've got a son who at least treated me mildly nice, but the girls, they never did. Uh, never did. Uh, my middle daughter, uh, Katie. Uh, we laugh. She, I, she was probably a freshman in high school, and she was in her bedroom, and, and she hollered at me. Um, and she never called me Daddy. So when she hollered, hey, Daddy, would you come here? I knew, I, we're cutting out again, aren't we? I have no idea, I'll just, I'll just turn it off. I have no idea why we're cutting out. Um, oh, you got me. Let me just get rid of this thing. I went in, and she's hollered, Daddy. And, and she said, Daddy, I'm not sleepy. Will you tell me a sermon? And so, <laughs> thanks a lot. Boom, 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 boom. So that sort of fits in here just a little bit. Um, we have a lot to cover today. I don't know how much here, you're in charge of this. <laughs> Record whatever you want to, I don't care. Um, We have a lot to cover. Uh, Last night, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversations with you, just set in different places. That was a blast. Um, I'm going to start with what I didn't intend to, but but two of the conversations right afterwards, and then with a a new friend last night, Um, I, I told her to remind me to start with this. Because there was a reoccurring theme that popped up. The, the reoccurring theme, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit, but if God is good and God does love us and God's powerful, why does this stuff happen like this? God, if, if, if you're, this is my, my words for it, God, if you're actually the nanny in the nursery, you're doing a lousy job. Okay, Because the nursery is pretty crazy. And so I want to take just a little bit of time and, and, and at least throw some at it. It'll be inadequate, but maybe it's a start. I think what you have to begin with is, is, is maybe a, a concept of how life works. That I'm going to give you a metaphor, a parable, you do what you want to with it. Um, let's see. I'm trying to read your name. What's what's it say? Camden. Camden. So Camden, you get picked on in this one. OK, <laughs> so Camden, I, I, I bring you into this room and I say, Camden, this room is yours. Uh, this room is yours. I, I, I invite you kind of as even a peer with me. I, I, I give you this room and Camden, you can paint this room any color you want to paint it. But Camden, trust me, you'll like white best. Uh, Now, again, Camden, you get to paint any color you want, but trust me, white is best. And so I give you 12, 15 cans of paint. And Camden starts painting with white, but he does kind of wonder what red might look like. And so Camden doesn't think I'm exactly watching him carefully. And so Camden goes to the cans of paint and starts looking for a red. And all 15 or whatever cans I gave him, they're all white. That's all there is. And so Camden comes to me, rightfully so, and goes, Garris, you're a liar. You, you told me I could paint it any color I wanted. You told me this was my room. And that, 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 but I'm just your paint puppet because white's my only choice. And I go, well, Camden, you're, you're kind of right. Okay, Camden, here's a can of red paint. But Camden, don't, don't use red. You won't like red, trust me. And so Camden goes, well, I I, I don't, I won't use it, but I just wanted at least the freedom of it. And and so he paints with white till he thinks my head's turned and he's a little curious. So Camden goes to the can of red paint and he puts his brush down in the red paint. And he goes to the wall and some far magic. It's red on his paintbrush, but as soon as it touches the wall, it turns white. In fact, he could take it, lots of red. And he gets so frustrated, he finally grabs the can of red paint and even goes to the wall and he throws it. And it's red, 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 red until it hits the wall and it turns white. And he goes, Randy, you lied to me again. You told me that I could paint it any color I wanted, but Randy, again, just a paint puppet. Because it doesn't matter what I do, it turns out what you want it to be anyhow. I'm just a minion, and I go, Camden, you're right. Camden, here's a can of red paint. You won't like red, but if you choose to paint with red, it'll be red. And so Cam then eventually begins to paint with red, and what he does discover is it stings the eye. And he does discover that wherever it touches, it burns. And Camden looks up, and he's got red paint kind of splattered all over him because he's in a room with seven billion other people painting with red, and he's shaking his fist going, Gareth, is your fault? If you hadn't given red, there wouldn't be any. The truth is I cannot be made in the image of God and given freedom, and the consequences always be taken away, because if the consequences are taken away, I have no choice. Choice and consequences... required. So when I shake my fist and say, God, this is your fault. I have a God who has tears running down his cheeks and goes, no, he weeps because of what has occurred. But I have a God who does not limit himself to weeping. I have a God who's done at least a couple of things. One is he went and found a hill in the middle of this place and he drove a stake in the ground and he said, red paint removed here. And then the second thing he said is in John 14 in multiple passages, never will I abandon you, never will I forsake you, never will I leave you. That I will take what the world meant for evil and I will take even what you meant for evil. And if you'll trust me, I'll redeem it and turn it for you. Many of you are the story of Lazarus. Red paint drowned you. You got drowned by red paint. But here's the good news. You have a God who grieves and a God who weeps, but a God who won't abandon you. And this redemptive story will be every bit as powerful as Lazarus walking out of a tomb. One illustration I might use, and yeah, I'll stay on the stage, but I'll walk back here a little bit. One of the most powerful stories I know um, relates a little bit to like that easel. Um, It occurred in 1979, 1980, somewhere in that range. I started preaching at the College Heights Christian Church in 1982, and this was a couple, three years before that. The art professor at Missouri Southern State University, it's a campus of about, back in those days, probably was 5,000 students. I'm gonna make that up. I'm guessing five, 6,000. But he was the art professor and Dishman was very good as an artist himself. He did commission paintings, different places. And, and he's got a, a, a bank or a business or somebody in Kansas City that commissioned a painting. And so he did it at his own house. And it was a big one. I mean, it, 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 it would be much larger than this he had it about 90, 95% done, and he brought it into class to show art students how you finish off a painting and what you do for preservation acts and those sort of things, and he brought it in and put it on an easel. Well, I'm not insulting to you, because you guys all know this, that on your best days, you're, you're the finest, most mature human beings on the face of the earth, and on your worst days, you're kind of like junior high kids, okay? <laughs> And I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know who poked who. I don't know what took place, but he has a high dollar commission painting and somebody walks by and knocks it off and falls into it and spills paint all over it. They said it ruined the canvas. If you can picture it here, the paints went down the middle. Said Dishman wasn't overly happy about it, but he didn't do what they expected. Instead of whitewashing it out or just taking the whole piece and crumbling it up and throwing it in the dumpster, he put it back on the easel and he left it for a week or two. Some of the kids thought he was just basically getting his revenge. But he wasn't. It sat on the easel and they said he began to come in and every day you watch something a little different. He began to take other colors And the outside edges stayed exactly like they were, but the middle that was ruined, he began to feather and lay in other colors over it, and he just began to layer, and he didn't whitewash anything, he just layered. And they said over the next several weeks, the most gorgeous painting you ever saw began to emerge out of a ruined canvas. It went to Kansas City, got a bonus, and all those sort of things as as I understand the story. Well, here's what I know. Everybody's canvas in this room gets ruined. Most of us have spilled enough paint in our own canvas to ruin it. And if we didn't, somebody else did. And I have a God who's in the repaint business. I'm a God who said, I don't throw you away. I don't throw it away. And sin will never have the last word. That if you'll trust me, Many of you are going, I just don't understand why it was God's will for my dad to walk out. I don't understand why it was God's will. I, I, everything that happens in life is God's will. No, that is bad theology. That is not God's will. Jesus stood over Jerusalem and wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Rich young ruler walks away and it said Jesus loved him and Jesus is sorrowful as he was. Not everything that happened to you is God's will. The red paint. But you have a God who not only will grieve, but you, he will meet you in that and the redemptive story. And that redemptive story is real. I, I, I Trust me. That, that I can tell you. Most of you in this room have lived 18, 19, 22 years, 24 years, and you've seen a lot but you've actually only been seen through adult eyes about four years. I'm going to tell you take a look at the next 10 years and you're going to come back and say I saw an awful lot of canvases get repainted including yours. Does that sort of make sense? Red paint metaphor or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Not everything that happened used God's will. God wept too. We probably ought to move on. Emotions, emotions. I, I do feel bad. More and more of you are coming up and going, Randy, I've actually watched your series and so I know what you're going to say next. Your lips are moving and my lips are following along with it. Nobody said that exactly, but that's, that's and I know many of you have seen it. I joke and I'm telling the truth. Truth when I say it, though, the best way to actually listen to me is online or because there's a stop button whenever you want it. And it's harder for you to find the stop button with me standing here. But, but these are core issues. I, I, they're just core issues. They just are. So what's happening? You need a framework to understand. I, I'm going to call this one a metaphor. I'm going to call this one a parable. What's happening on your emotions? Uh, here's the best way I know to describe it. <laughs> By the way, you don't need to actually see anything up here. It does no good to anybody else, but it entertains me. And so that's what I'm doing. Everybody is born, you were born with a box of emotions. Those bo- a box of emotions is actually not very different from the person beside you. I just came from the American Association of Christian Counselors Convention. About 7,000 of us were together. I've been to that convention on a regular basis. I sat with any number of psychologists, uh, um, individuals that are, that are deep into the mental health issues. Uh, we were talking about this. I was having different informal conversations as well. About all of us are born with somewhere around 25 to 30 of the same basic emotions. You, you have these emotions as a gift from God. They're not a curse to you. They're not a gift out of hell. They're a gift out of heaven. Things that you may have heard me say in the past, but the reason you care about mercy is because God cares about mercy. The reason you care about justice is God cares about justice. The reason you have joy is because God has joy. The reason you have sadness is God has sadness. I mean, the, the, These are emotions that God gave you. You are the shadow of God. He's the greater and you're the lesser, but you are the shadow. And a, and a shadow is, 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 is most what it ought to be when it looks like the, it's substance. That's what it means made, made in the image of God. He gave you these. Those 25 to 30 emotions are pretty universal. Now you can debate in, in a psychology class, you can debate uh, whether or not there's four core ones or six core ones or eight core ones. It doesn't really much matter. I've been to a zoo and there's something called mammals, and then there's a whole variety of them when you get there. These are nuances. For example, sadness, but sadness is different than despair. You have these same basic 25 to 30 emotions. Here's the problem. While they're a gift to you, they come to you like they're four-year-old kids. They are immature and terrible. They're not only like they're four-year-old kids, they're like four-year-old kids with a baseball bat, okay? They come to you and they are powerful but immature. They are not only powerful and immature, but they are so mixed together, you don't even know what they are. They're like a bowl of spaghetti inside a bowl, uh, inside a dark closet with no light. I mean, they're just mixed together. You, you take care of any child. You can't get that child to be able to explain the emotions they're feeling. Why? They don't know what they're feeling. It's just, it just there. So what is life for? Life has the basic sequence that this is what you do in maturity. You are designed to unpack that box of emotions, to have them mature, to have them look like the nature of God, to have them walk in harmony with that. And so to do that, you have to take them to the Lord and you have to take them to the Lord's people in order to help you do that. These emotions are incredibly powerful. But they have their greatest power, and this doesn't sound very theologically accurate, but it's still true. They have their greatest power in the dark. They're like vampires. In the dark, great power. Let me just take a simple illustration. When you were a child and something happened that greatly shamed you, you didn't even know what you felt. All you knew is it crushed you and you ran to your room and you slammed the door. And some of you even got in the back of your closet because the shame was so overwhelming. But you didn't know what you felt. You just knew it was crushing. And shame was was like a heavy weight you couldn't handle. But, to stick with my, my part of this, but somebody telling you what the Lord thinks and somebody sitting with you in that dark closet helping you with that shame it goes back only this time it goes back in tame and you're comforted and there's joy in it and you begin to identify what shame is and so the process is to unpack the box Begin to figure what each one actually, what's it feel like? What is it? And what is the biblical kingdom answer from the Lord and the Lord's people so it can go back? And in a perfect world, you would have unpacked the 25 or 30 emotions. You know what they are and and they're there. But I said last night, you grew up in an activity-based culture. You don't grow up in a mentoring-based culture. You don't grow up in a relationship culture, you grow up in a peer-based culture. you spent more time with first graders when you were a first grader, and third graders when you were a third grader, and seventh graders when you're seventh grader, and sophomores in college. And so what happens is we all kind of drown together. And there weren't people to help us. This is an interjection. I apologize, but I'm gonna interject it anyhow. There's a price to be paid in every culture you live in. If you were in most third world countries, or at least some third world countries, the price to be paid is you bury babies. It's nobody's fault. But you bury that house, buried baby, that house, buried baby, that house, this house, this house, everybody buries babies because the infant mortality rate is so stinking high. So what's the price to be paid in a first world country? You live at arm's length from most people and call it friendship. It's an activity based friendship. We don't even know it. We've grown up in it. This feels normal to us. But somebody often, this is a common thing, somebody from the third world country will come into our culture and will live here at eight or nine or ten months later, they're bawling in my office or maybe sitting on their porch. And we'll say, What's the problem? And they will say, No one will be our friends. And you go, What do you mean? Everybody loves you. And they will say, Everybody is friendly, but we don't have friends. Americans live with an independence that we don't let people into our life. We value our activities, we value our productivity professionally, we value our entertainment, but we, friends, are, 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 are just further away. So what happens is we don't get mentored to this. We're also not an intergenerational culture. We're just not. And so what happens is nobody helps us unpack the box. You want to know why you act the way you act? Why are you angry? when you, I, I, It'll be your deeper story and your box is not unpacked. I, I tell the story, it's just the easiest way in order to illustrate it. There are little motors that are running all the time. There are things that are acting on you. The ones in the dark, they're acting all the time. I took several couples, a lot of times, down to the current river in Missouri, and I had one couple that, and their canoe, just kept hitting the right bank. They just kept hitting the right bank. I, they're paddling right, and they can't keep it in the river. I thought maybe their gunwale, their canoe is bent or something. So I, I checked their canoe and it's straight, but they can't keep it from hitting. Finally, the whole group's having to wait on them. I say, okay, I'm going to take your canoe with my partner and, and, and you guys take our canoe. And when we're unpacking it, I discover what it is. They had hung a monofilament um, fishing line off the back right-hand corner of the canoe and had like, I don't know, 12, 18 cans of Dr. Pepper in the water to keep cool. It's called a rudder. The emotions you have not unpacked, that's why you are so jealous so quick. That's why you feel so insecure. That's why you get angry as fast. That's why you give up too easily. They are rudders that are at work on you. And they're a blessing that God intended for you to take to the Lord and the Lord's people and put them back. And it would be a blessing to you, but in its immature state, it's a curse to you and it's a rudder, it's driving you. It gets worse. Not only are we in a culture that doesn't unpack them, we're actually in a culture in most of our families that only five to seven of those emotions are permissible in your family. Not mad at your family, don't owe your family, but most families, you only have five to seven that are really permissible. Now, there was never a family meeting on Sunday night to decide we're gonna vote on which promotions, emotions, but you joined your family late, it already had a pattern. Your parents joined their family late, it had a pattern. Families have patterns and you're born into them. So the five to seven emotions doesn't mean they handle them well, it just means they're the presentable, I guess I'm not using that, I can throw that thing off, Maybe you grew up in a family that anger is permissible. Your family had a lot of anger. You thought it was normal till the friends came over and you saw the whites of their eyes as they're around how your family talks to each other. No, your family permitted anger. Some of your family is all right for the men to be angry, but the women not to be angry. Maybe you grew up in a family that anger wasn't permissible. We can be passive aggressive, but we're not angry. We're not angry people. Maybe you grew up in a family that sadness is not permissible. Oh, you can be mad if you want to. You can be angry, but, but sadness? Oh, no, sadness, somebody will call you a wuss and somebody says you're crying over spilt milk and you're called a baby and time to get over it and get, get on with it. and So sadness is not permitted. Maybe you grew up in a family that joy is not permitted. Well, what do you mean? Oh, no, we're a sarcastic family and a bit of a negative family. And if somebody has this balloon of joy, everybody takes a pen and goes, oh, yeah, like you're the queen of the world. And they yeah, like, that's going to happen for you. And oh, yeah, like that's and you, you even tell something joyful. And there's always a yes, but no, you need to see the glass half empty. There are families all over this country that have patterns. And many of you are sitting here right now and have left me trying to think the pattern in your own family. But I'll pretty well about guarantee you about five to seven is probably all that you actually saw very often. So if I were to take this and say, okay, we cleared a little of the corner of this and allowed some emotions to come out publicly. We didn't sort of take them to the Lord and the Lord's people to heal them, but but they came out. So what's happening? What's happening? Two things are happening. Here are the two. I'm not going to write all this out. You couldn't read it if I did anyhow. Here are the two things that are happening. Number one, here's what you do. You transfer the emotions you don't understand and the emotions you have not healed. You transfer them to the permissible ones. What, what? the emotions that are mixed up and dark and motors that are running, you transfer them to the permissible one. The easiest story for me to tell, and, and you can, just because you can see it, um, my father, uh, it's impossible for me to speak highly enough of my father. My dad died about two years ago and a fine, fine man passed and left this world. I'm very proud of my father. But the father that raised me didn't become probably, he didn't become a Christ follower until I was married and had kids. And the father that raised me was angry. Oh, he was angry. I was in a man's world from the time I can remember. We were dirt poor, dad's trying to make it, uh, we didn't have any money, dad's trying to farm and ranch, and, and I'm on a tractor and I can't even reach the clutch. i got to turn the key off in order to stop the, the tractor. I, 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 just the world I grew up in. Dad never stood there and just cussed me to my face. But if something went wrong, my dad would throw a bucket and he's walking off just cussing every possible word. Imagine that. So if you can imagine the game from the Olympics curling, where they, they slide the, the ice or the rock down the ice and the guy with the broom in front of it just sweep in like crazy? I'm, I'm the kid who grew up with a broom in my hand just trying to anticipate. What will make dad mad? What, what would make dad mad? How do I, how do I what do I do? And, and I'm just constantly trying to keep, figure out what my job is. So your dad had an anger problem. No, dad actually didn't have an anger problem. Well, you just said he was mad all the time. Yeah, I know. You could have sent dad to anger management school and you really missed. See, the truth was my dad got kicked out of high school as a sophomore in high school for fighting and never went bad back. My dad, probably as a 15-year-old kid, just took off and lived out of a bottle and probably was an alcoholic for about five years until he was about twenty. My dad bummed around the country. He was that kid hitchhiking and he was in all the pool halls. My dad went to the military when he was twenty, and my dad was shocked in the military, they kind of trusted him with responsibility and my dad kind of straightened up and my dad came back and who knows why, dad married the valedictorian, explain that one to me. (laughs) And dad has nothing, dad came from a family that's a three ring circus, enough alcoholics and everything else in my dad's side of the family and my dad doesn't wanna duplicate his family, but dad doesn't know how and dad tries to make a living and trying to take care of a wife and little kids and my dad, whenever he felt fear he transferred it to anger. Whenever my dad felt failure, he transferred it to anger. Whenever my dad felt frustrated and stupid, he transferred it to anger. Whenever my dad had an insecurity, he transferred it to anger. Anger was permissible in the family he grew up in and he transferred everything to anger. It wasn't until Christ began to help my dad with all the other things that my dad's temper stopped being the carrier. You guys can picture this. I want you to picture a balloon, that long skinny balloon here. Let me shove down this end of the balloon. What happens to this end? It pops up and raises. I I know I'm stating this strongly, but most of you in this room don't even actually know who you are. Because right now, you're living with the compensating you You're living with a you that you think, man, I'm really an insecure person. I'm really an angry person. I'm really a jealous person. I'm really an easily wounded person. I'm a really this. And you think that's who you are. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's the unrepaired you, but that's not you. Crazy thing is when you begin to take and you begin to unpack this box and those things go back in tame, you will be shocked at how your sense of being easily wounded drops. You'll be shocked at how your sense of being able to have joy, legitimate joy is actually there. You just run through all this, this, this stuff. Most of us use that carrier. I use the illustration, if you've watched the videos, I use the, the, the story of Cheery Mary. She's the little girl who's fun and laughter and joy. And you get niched if you're not careful. So cheery Mary comes to the kitchen table for breakfast, and she's sad. She's been in the bathroom crying, and she comes with sadness, and families have patterns. And the family, maybe it's a seventh-grade boy, maybe it's a sophomore boy, maybe it could even be a dad or a mom. But somebody begins to go, who's this little girl? We... (coughs) We don't know this little girl. Where's, where's, where's our fun little girl? Where's our cheery little girl? Did, did this girl get out of the wrong side of the bed? Maybe you got to go back and get in bed and get out on the other side of the bed. Because what happened to Cheery Mary? And she begins to figure out, wait a second, my acceptance and my role in this family and my, my being loved has something to do with my being cheery and happy. And, and so tomorrow morning she gets out of bed and there's also the same sadness. And she goes to the bathroom and she cries. But she wipes it off and she transfers her coping skill to laughter. I feel better if I can get them all to laugh. They like me better when I get them all to laugh. And so she wipes the tears and she comes in and she starts wisecracking and telling stories and Sherry Mary is back and we go forward. That's why Robin Williams will hang himself, a comedian. That's why Bill Cosby was a monster We compensate. All of you in this room literally are the image of God. You're a shadow. That's who you are. Again, I'm interjecting. My best day as a grandpa. I've had a lot of good days as a grandpa. I've got 11 grandchildren. They're scattered. The oldest is 19, and he's at Missouri University. Kinley, who this story is on, Kinley is, is a junior in high school. I'll never forget the day. I have the grandpa taken her for uh, just entertainment. She's not, quite, she's not quite two. She's one and close to her birthday to be turned two. It's a bright, sunny day, and I've got her on my lap, and I've got her on the lawnmower, not to mow grass. You don't mow grass with a one-year-old in your lap. But I'm using it like a go-kart. And and it was a day that the sun was so crisp, and I can't explain it, but I noticed Kenley's shadow was just so sharp on the ground, and and so I tap this little blonde, blue-eyed little girl, and and I point to the shadow on the ground, and she looks at it, and and I say, Kenley, wave at it, and she waves, and the shadow waved back at her. And and then she waved. Both, both hands, and, and the shadow, and she just began to giggle and laugh and, and laugh. And, and then I would turn, and the shadow's gone, and, and she couldn't find it. And, and I would point, and she'd climb up my shoulder and find it, and she'd start giggling. One of the most delightful days of my life was the day that Kenley discovered she had a shadow. One of the most delightful days in all my life was the day that I discovered I'm the shadow of God. When my kids were little... We had a a children's book we read to them about the little boy that had a shadow that got lost. And the shadow at first is really, really pleased because he got lost. But then he gets scared and and the shadow tries to be a cow but he's not a cow and he tries to be a barn. He's not a barn. He tries to be a tree and he's not a tree. And the little shadow gets gets more and more distorted until he finds his little boy and he gets his shape back. That is your redemptive story every one of your emotions are meant to to be a blessing. You look like a tree, they're not a blessing. You look like a cow, they're not a blessing. You look like him. So I have to go to him and God's people help me unpack this. We transfer the emotions we don't understand to the permissible ones. probably ought to do more with that, but I'm going believe it. There's a second thing we do. By the way, I, I, I got to put this in. You're going to delight in who you are when the back box gets unpacked. You're going to like you in incredible ways. You're going to find you're more resourced than you ever believed. You're going to discover that God made you more whole, capable, and resourceful than you ever dreamed. You're going to find out you actually are gifted by God with the leverage to change the world, but you gotta unpack the box. The second thing we do is we don't just transfer the emotions we don't understand to the permissible ones. We transfer the emotions we don't understand to something physical. We transfer to something physical. I can't even read that, so good luck. Well, why would we do that? That's stupid. Why would you transfer emotions? You don't understand something physical. Because that's what you learn to do as a child. Um, I say in the videos, if you've watched it, I I want you to take a four-year-old to Walmart, a four-year-old you know very, very well. In this story, let's make it a four-year-old boy. When you pull into Walmart, that box and that four-year-old boy begins to fire with joy and longing and excitement because toys and candy are what he imagines, and his box begins to fire with excitement. And then you turn, in the parking lot, you turn to the four-year-old boy and say, hey, we're gonna go in, no toys, no candy, we're getting dishwashing soap and motor oil. (laughs) That little boy's box now begins to fire with something different. It begins to fire with sadness. It begins to fire, fire with disappointment. It begins to fire with anger. It's not fair. You went to Walmart yesterday and his brother got something and now he's not getting something. And and so anger and all of that. So as you're taking this little four year old boy's hand and walking across the Walmart parking lot, what's the chance he's gonna turn to you and say, you know, Uncle Sean, I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling anger. No, he's not. Why? He doesn't know what he feels. All he knows is he's upset. Most of you in this room, actually, you don't even know what you feel. All I know is I'm hurt, I'm mad, I'm upset, but I don't actually know what I feel. It's just... And so the little boy, as his box is firing with these things, and he didn't know what it is, he transfers to something physical. Where's the lip go? In his boots, he starts scuffing the ground all the way across. Nobody had to train him to turn into physical. Nobody had to teach him how to do that. And because it's Walmart, you'll say to him 73 straight times, no, put that back, because everything's at eye level for him. No, put that back. And his box just keeps building and keeps building and keeps building. So how does, he, how does he get rid of the pressure in the box? He throws a little hissy fit. He may even flop down on the floor at the end of one of the aisles and just start bawling and kicking the floor. Now, you don't spank somebody in Walmart, I promise you. I think you go to prison for 12 years or something like that. <laughs> But when you get him back to the car, his little crying jag, his little crying jag, it was dysfunctional. It didn't work because it had more shame when you got back to the car. You're acting like a baby. I can't take you anywhere. And and, it added more shame. But in some crazy, broken, dysfunctional way, it worked because he cried it out. It let the pressure off. Oh, it didn't work because it has a cycle now that starts of, of shame and, and what you do with it. But in some crazy broken way, it let the pressure off. He wasn't just working you. He was trying to find the valve for what you do with this. So why is the 14 year old girl in Stillwater? Why is she a cutter? Why does she go into the bathroom and cut the back of this leg or under here? Why does she slice just a little right there on the hip bone where no one will see it? Well, her problem is bathroom doors and razor blades. No, she's got a box and that box just builds pressure and it could be either way. It could be she's not, she didn't feel pretty enough, skinny enough, tall enough and well liked enough and Sally just, <laughs> Sally, Dump me, and my friend group doesn't want me. And, and in some crazy way, she has. She nobody's taught her to unpack the box. So a little bit of blood and a little bit of sting. And some crazy. It, it doesn't work. It's dysfunctional. Makes her have more shame afterwards. But in the moment, it kind of kind of worked. At the moment. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe everybody tells she's pretty enough, skinny enough, talented enough, well-liked enough. She's actually at the cool kid table there and with the 14-year-olds and, 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 and she's got the boys that kind of throw themselves at her. And, 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 but internally she's going, I don't know why I'm on this pedestal and I don't know how to stay on the pedestal. And if I don't know how I got here, I don't know how I stay here. And, and the tension and the worry and the fear of something going wrong. And In some crazy way, she doesn't know how to pack the pressure of the box, and so the razor blade. So I meet the guy that weighs 500 pounds, and I say, why do you weigh 500? And he says, I just like pie better than other people. No, you don't like pie better than other people. Everybody likes pie. But somewhere in your growing up years, you didn't know how to celebrate, and a piece of pie somehow helped with the joy. And when you had failure and you got shot down and that whole dating thing and the whole sports thing and and somehow a piece of pie made you feel better. I, I say, I'm telling the truth, somebody is gonna break my nose over this one of these days. Go to any gym in America and there's 25 people, there are 25, I'm gonna say guys, there's 25 guys there Now they're independent, they're not together. But they have to work out two and a half hours a day, and I just, I just don't feel good about life if I don't work out two and a half hours a day. And again, I'm, I'm not opposed. Somebody's trying to get the D1 scholarship or trying to get the Olympics or something, but, but these are guys that, that I just have to, and, and, and they just put their head down in two and a half hours a day is how I cope with life. I know I'm being a little, little jabby here, but I'm telling the truth. Do I have the emotional giants of the neighborhood I got the guy that hates his dead-end job. I got the guy who's divorced, and he can't, he can't win in court. And I don't have a 13-year-old that I can even carry a conversation on. And somehow, I, I, I got to make it to the gym for two and a half hours every day, because if I don't, I, I don't know how to, how to cope. So why is porn in your life? I don't know what percent of the guys in this room. I don't know what percent of the girls. I know the normal percents in most Christian circles. Why are many of you standing here singing songs to Jesus, but the truth is your phone, your phone has taken you to more brothels around this world than you could possibly imagine. The masturbations that occur constantly because you're watching phones and showers, both guys and girls. Why? Well, I, 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 I guess I'm just lustier than other people. No, no, you're not. Everybody fights lust. Well, I guess I'm just ad- addicted. I, I, I started it early and I'm, I'm addicted. No, let's pitch that word out. That, that, that's kind of a buzzword. It just means you keep going back to it. Let's go underneath it. Why? Your porn isn't because of sex. It has little to do with sex. If I tell you your own story, I'm pretty well telling you right. When you first discovered porn, it was empowering. Whoa, Whoa that's a whole world I didn't know about. For some of the guys in this room, I'm a man. It was empowering for the first time encounter. Falsely empowering by the way, but, but empowering. But that isn't why you stay with porn. That isn't when you use you don't do, use porn on your good days. You use porn on the days you feel like you failed. You use porn on the days you're sad. You use porn on the days you're discouraged. You use porn on the days you're stressed. You realize, don't you, that apathy, by the way, is one of those 30 emotions. It's a numbing emotion. It's like morphine. You use porn on your I don't give a a damn day. Why? Because we transfer to something physical. You actually don't solve porn by dealing with porn. Oh, don't misunderstand me. We need to be wise and figure some things out. If you want to bail the boat out, stop drilling holes in the bottom of the boat for a little while while you're bailing it out. But if you actually want to get over porn, it's time to grow up. Some of you in this room, your sexual encounters are so shameful to you. Why? Why in your dating life has sex been such a part of your dating life? You you love Christ, you're at at these things. Why why is sex? Why why can't I keep my hands off the guy I'm dating and the guy can't keep his zipper? Why? I, I guess we're just Physical touch, I guess, no, actually, I've done this long enough, lived my own life. Can I tell you those that are whole with your own emotions, you have a very manageable physical pressure. And those of you that have the least emotional maturity have the highest physical pressure. We transfer. Unpack the box. Give me about two minutes because this won't make sense for a while. There's a phrase that surprised me from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a phrase about 30 times, 32 times, if I recall right. It talks about the Baal and the Asherah. B a a l. And then Asherah. The Israelites would go to a hill behind their house and they would put two very sensual gods back there. A Baal and an Asherah. Physical. Very sensual. And they would build a little dark path they used at night to go to the Baal and the Asherah. Well, I expect the Baal and the Asherah with wicked people. I expected among Ahab and Jezebel to have a Baal and an Asherah. I expect the Philistines and all those to have their Baals and the Asherah. But what I don't expect is to find the prophets of God who had a Baal and an Asherah. I, I, I'm surprised to find kings that are actually good kings, but they did not destroy the Baal and the Asherah. And you going, what in the world is that? It's two false gods because here's the reality. There are some things I don't know how to take to the Lord and the Lord's people. I don't know what to do with it. So I find a little secret second God behind me. And the second God helps me cope. And so you have individuals who will lead worship here and stand and do exactly what I'm doing. Preach. But we have a little secret path. We keep going to this false God. That helps me cope. That Baal and Asherah, this is going to be Captain Obvious, can be negative. Duh. Porn. Some of you in this room, the marijuana, you just don't know how you would cope without it. For some of you in this room, you just don't know what you would do if it weren't for the alcohol. I don't manage it well, but I don't know that I could live life without it. It can be the porn, it can be the dope, it can be the alcohol. My my cousin Ronnie grew up in our, Ronnie, Donnie, and Jerry had had three brothers. Their dad was in prison constantly. Their mom just worked. She started teaching in one-room country schools. I mean, I know that sounds like it's an eternity away, but it's not. It's my aunt. She started teaching with a high school diploma in one-room country schools, but she had to go to 19 straight summers of summer school all the time so she's gone working as a single mom trying to look after these three little boys and all summer she's gone and all school years she's gone and these three little boys grew up on our couch and my grandparents couch and Ronnie became an alcoholic Ronnie's phrase is I only got drunk one time it only lasted 25 years why did Ronnie get drunk because he loved the taste of alcohol no not in the least because it was a coping mechanism and Ronnie, to his credit, unpacked the box and Ronnie got well. It can be negative. Your bail and your Asherah can be neutral. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Work out two and a half hours a day. It's not illegal. No high patrolman is going to pull you over and go, well, that was a little too long with the barbells, I'm just telling you. It's, it's perfectly legal to work out. It's, it's neutral. There's a friend of mine that I talk about in this, um, Tom, Tom Rogers. Tom would tell you his own story. Tom was one of the most addictive personalities I've ever met. Charismatic, likable, the stinking guy. He his. He could sell ice to an Eskimo, I promise you. He is so likable. But Tom messed up his life and spilled red paint in his own canvas every possible way. Affairs, alcohol, I mean, you name it. Secrets behind, there there were secrets behind the secrets. And Tom came to Jesus. When Tom came to Jesus, he came hard. But he hasn't had time to unpack the box, and Tom's still a mess. He knows the gospel intellectually. He accepts it intellectually. He's grateful for it emotionally the best he understands it. But he's got a lot of work to do. Tom moved immediately from all of this and became an ultra-marathoner running 50 and 90-mile runs. He just started running. It's Forrest Gump. He just started running. I'm not bothered by him doing that. He was trying to find something that was safe while he did that. Some of you watched the very film, I've watched this series that I've got on film, the cameraman who was filming when I did this. When I finished, he sat down and he started wiping tears and he said, that's my story. He said, I didn't know what to do. I was doing everything destructive. And he said, I started working out two and a half hours a day fighting like crazy not to go back to this stuff because I wanted to be a Christ follower, but I didn't know what to do with my emotions. I'm not bothered by this. I've left you a hole here a second. Tom's running was here. For what it's worth, Tom moved his running over here. We'll talk about that in a second. Your Baal and your Asherah can be negative. It can be neutral. But here's the real killer in a group like this. Your Baal and Asherah can look positive. So you're an extraordinary student. And life is an absolute hard thing for you but I just throw myself into my schoolwork and somehow I cope better and feel better when I get the A and I just cope and somehow it's it's, it's the grade and the degree. For some of you, it's work. Everybody tells you you have this extraordinary work ethic. For some of you, it's worship leading. Well, wait a second. Hang on. Worship leading. I'm serving Jesus and I'm I'm doing right and I'm and I'm advancing the kingdom. And and God goes, no, no, you're going to your worship leading for your healing and worship leading will never be your healing. I am your healer. You're using God against God. For me, when I am started, I'm very confident with my preaching. I was a kid who didn't even know I had any more emotions than four in my box I had sort of numbed myself. I'm the kid who sort of overachieved. I wasn't good. The secret to my athletic ability is to be in a really small pond. <laughs> but I was decent for a small little bitty town. I was a good student. But I wasn't a good student out of my creative ability as a blessing and a chase. It was because my being a good student was about my identity my dad i grew up with a dad that had no respect for book smarts but i had a dad who really respected street smarts. so if you don't make mistakes and you're street smart you're probably okay but if you make mistakes you're stupid i remember being a kid unhooking a disc we'd borrow a neighbor's disc I didn't know the disc very well. It had three hydraulic hoses to lift it up. It's dark. It's, I mean, it's after dark. I don't know this particular disc. I'm probably, I don't even know. I'm, I'm going to say 9 to 11 years old. I have no idea. Somewhere in that range. And I, I saw two of the hydraulic hoses and unhooked them between the disc and, and, and the tractor. It's just a, a dirt implement, uh, for those of you that are not far in background. And I drove away and when I drove away I snapped a hydraulic hose. That in itself probably in that day would be kind of the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks today maybe 300. All I know is I went to the barn and just started throwing up and I couldn't stop throwing up. I had the dry heaves going you're so stupid you're just so stinking stupid you're just and so here's this nine or 11 year old boy with the dry heaves you're just so stupid And to borrow my dad's words, you're so damn stupid. Now dad didn't say that to me, but he didn't have to because I'm the one sticking the post-it notes on me. I'm the one. So when I made good grades and when I was bragged on for my work ethic and when I'm the good athlete that I have to win, I've had 79 stitches on my face. You don't get natural good looks like this without looking at it, working at it. (laughs) All of my plastic surgery has been pretty much related to sports. I just keep my head in and I fight longer than I, why? And so my preaching, I'm confident I felt better. Here's the problem. The bale and the Asherah have no power to heal. You wanna know why? You would go 15 states to listen to a worship leader and go, this is the most incredible worship service, but you wouldn't want to be her husband or the wife or the kids. Not because they're a hypocrite. Hypocrites are not in this discussion. There's no discussion about hypocrites. You want to know why the preacher is incredible. He appears to have great spiritual maturity. But you don't want to be on his staff because he gets his feelings hurt and he's fragile. And here's why. Is they've been going to their ministries for their healing. And it doesn't heal you. At some point in time, you got to go, I'm done with this nonsense. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Christ, you are my healer. Christ, you and your people are my healer. And when you begin to move it over here, and you chase after that and begin to unpack the box, that's when the worship leader, that's when the preacher, that's when the runner. Tom has moved his running over here. But if Tom were here and having a conversation, Tom would say, I enjoy running. I I have fun with running. But the, the pressure came off of running. I run because it's my delight and my joy. But if I never ran another step in my life, I would grieve, but I'd be perfectly fine. My preaching, I'm confident, used to be there. But my preaching is here, and it really is. It's an honor to get to stand and talk about things that matter. There are people that have jobs. All they can talk about is the rivet machine they run, or how about them cardinals, or how about the weather? We get to talk about the things that matter. I'm honored to do it. But I figured out a long time ago that my preaching has nothing to do with my healing. Not really. You see, Christ would say, Randy, I loved you in the nursery when you didn't even know your name. And Randy, I will love you in the nursing home when you can't remember your name and your preaching doesn't have anything to do on how I see you, or Randy, when I was a kid and I preached a bad sermon and I preached a lot of them, I'm confident. My favorite years at College Heights, where we had five Sunday morning worship services for about seven or eight years. And I preached all five services. You want to know what takes a lot of courage? Preach a bad sermon five straight times in a row. (laughs) In my early days, I preached a bad sermon. I am so embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Shame would hit me. And I would find myself rooting for for Sunday to come again so I can redeem myself and how I preached so it comes across better. Boy I need Sunday to come again. I just need Sunday to come again. I'm running to my preaching for my healing. And when I figured out to go home and and sit down with Christ and go, Christ, that was embarrassing this morning. And Christ could whisper to me out of scripture and through my wife's voice and through my friends and whatever. Randy, I loved you when you preach good sermons and I love you when you preach lousy sermons and it doesn't make much difference. Randy, let let, let me me work with that emotion in a real way. It took all the pressure off. The disconnect in the Christian kingdom between those who look spiritually mature but are not emotionally mature can only be one of two things. They either haven't had enough time or they're using a Baal and an Asherah that just happens to look holy and sacred, but it's still a Baal and an Asherah. I don't want that for you. I need to wrap this up. I've already gone longer than I meant to, so how do you do that? That's the $100 question. I told you last night, I think it's a three-year journey. Now, it'll take you a lifetime but I think it's a three-year journey. Here's the good news. You'll be shocked in two to three months how much progress you make. Blown away in two or three months. You you just can't believe in two to three months. But realistically, to work it out into all the parts of your body and all your thinking, you, you gotta probably plan on a little longer journey. But three months, two or three months, incredible progress. I don't know how it will work for you, but I I can tell you some of the basic elements. Number one, you're going to have to have silence and solitude. You cannot live in the middle of an eight-lane highway with life happening and you hear the quiet voice of God. Elijah, even when he, in 1 Kings 19, when he meets, it it talks about his meeting with God as a quiet, still voice. I, I think you're going to have to have that. Most of you will be playing to the crowd, whether you know it or not. And the crowd is where you get all your, and so I think silence and solitude. Now, I don't think silence and solitude is just a free silence and solitude. I think it's a silence and solitude that I meet the voice of God. Most of you can either, and last night we were talking, I was talking to a young lady and made the statement, something along the line, and I'll I'll slightly alter the language, but, but you can either listen to yourself or you can talk to yourself if you listen to yourself you're going to get the same spiral or you can talk to yourself out of the truth that God's whispering to you and you speak to yourself. Silence and solitude allows you to to do that. You're going to have to put that in. Here's a second thing that I know will fit. You're going to have to learn to do a Bible study that is not historical and not classroom style where you learn Jerusalem and Jericho and Jebusites and Judea. You're going to have to learn to do a Bible study that you open it up, Colossians chapter 3, or any passage. And you've got to learn to study the passage and ask God to help you unpack your emotional box with that text. Colossians 3, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Okay, so if I'm reading that passage, I can't just read that passage. I've got to stop and go, Christ, is that really how you consider me? Do you really see me that way? Because I don't feel like a holy person. God, is that true? And I'm going to tell you, in my case, picking up a Bible and an ink pen, and I'm a guy, I hate writing. I, I can write the U.S. Constitution on a postage stamp. I write tiny, small, and cramped. But somehow, when I picked up an ink pen and a Bible and I began to take my day and study Scripture and weave them together, God began to unpack my box in profound ways. A third thing is you've got to hang out with people who are ahead of you. Maybe not an age, but you have to hang out with wise people. You think COVID nineteen is contagious? Stupidity is a whole lot more contagious. (laughs) And here's the good news, so is wisdom. The companions of the wise become wise. There's a guy named Gary Riker. I'm so grateful for Gary. Gary was in school with me. Owasso, Oklahoma. Gary and I got into all kinds of fun and in trouble things too. Gary Riker used emotions in wiser ways than I did, and I studied him like a hawk. I watched Gary like crazy. And here's this Oklahoma kid who helped me walk out of the box that I didn't know how to unpack. He didn't even know it for a long time. I lost Gary here about three weeks ago. He and I talked every two to three weeks for 50 years. Died unexpectedly become the companions of the wise. For most of you it uh, it probably needs to involve intergenerational as well. And I'm going to give you the fourth one. The fourth one would come from Galatians chapter 5. It's a wonderful passage it says be led by the spirit, walk by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit, live by the spirit. I mean it's 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 just the accompanied life. But if you read that text that actually says, take a towel and basin and go serve people, there's things about God you won't discover till you actually begin to love people. You can't go set off on a stool and meditate and come to this great comprehension about God. God says, come on, kid, I'll meet you with the towel and basin as we're washing people's feet and taking care of them. And when you begin to love, you know what also is in Galatians five, and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, pe- what? what, what? if you'll walk with the spirit, be led by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit, here is the fruit I will give you. Some of you are even fussy right now going, God, I don't think you keep your word. I've been doing churchy things. I've been at all the meetings and, 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 and all that. And, and God, you haven't given me the fruit of the spirit. It says there in Galatians five, you give me the fruit of the spirit. This is hypothetical. But if I told in some of you if I told you that I have $100 to give you, meet me at, and I tell you exactly which building to meet me at. And at the end of the day, I hear you are going, hey, Garris is a liar. I went down to the lake, he didn't give it to me. I went over to the offices, he didn't give it to me. I hung out in here and he didn't give it to me. I went out to the parking lot, he didn't give it to me. Garris didn't give me the $100. I would say, well, wait a second. We had a place that, that I said where the exchange would take place and, and you didn't go there. For what it's worth, doing lots of church activity is not the same thing as actually loving people. And he says the fruit of the spirit comes because you decide to love. Those are some things to wrestle around. I've already kept you longer than I should have. Please give me your forgiveness if you don't mind. I'm asking for it. But my great desire for you is to take a journey. Let's unpack the box. Let's get well. God bless.